Time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, how are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. Didn't slip or slide. I'm here in one piece. It's all good. Absolutely. <laughs> we all want to make sure that we fulfill our common law duties to one another in times such as this, especially if we are a municipality. Question one, when can you sue a municipality for not clearing the snow? Is that something that can happen? You certainly can. And uh, a timely... Uh, and uh, informative answer from the Court of Appeal just came out, trying to clarify, once again, when you can do exactly that. When can you sue the municipality? Uh, and this is a case that came out of Nelson from 2015. At least that's where it started. Okay. Uh, for poor Miss, uh, I think it's Marshy, probably mispronouncing that terribly. In any case, she, uh, in a snowy day, drove her car to downtown Nelson, parked in an angled spot, and then could see no other way to get to the sidewalk uh, that was clear. Uh, so she marched on, stepped into a giant pile of snow. It sounds like perhaps it had been pushed there in the snow-clearing efforts. Uh, and uh, much to her misfortune, uh, wound up uh, having her foot twisted back, stuck in the snow, and wound up uh, with a serious injury to her leg. And so she sued the city of Nelson. Well, that wound up at trial... Uh, and she was unsuccessful suing the city of Nelson, which is what precipitated this appeal to the Court of Appeal uh, and this brand new decision clarifying once again for all of us when you can and when you can't sue a municipality for not clearing the snow. And the Court of Appeal uh, clarified once again for all of us, and this comes out of a, a Supreme Court of Canada case from back in 1989, mm -hmm. a good case. It's called Just versus British Columbia, so a good case to try to set up what's uh, just or fair. Okay. And the essential division is this. You can successfully sue the government, including the municipality, for negligence in an operational decision. However, you cannot successfully sue for a policy decision. So, for example, if the city of Victoria decided as a matter of policy to save money, maybe to fund the police department, all they're going to do is clear the bike lanes. That's it. And they give clear direction <laughs> to... getting a little too close right? to home. So if you give clear direction, the city council says, look, we're saving money. City workers only clear the bike lanes and, in fact, uh, feel free to push the rest of the snow into the uh, uh, rest of the road to form a blockage. It'll be good for, you know, climate change, whatever. That's our policy decision. Okay. If you uh, crash your car into the heap of snow put in the middle of the road by virtual that policy decision, you are out of luck. Um, you don't have any ability to sue for those sort of government policy decisions or other things. For example, in the close-to-home front, if somebody says, hey, look, I was uh, robbed and nobody showed up there from the police department for 45 minutes, you know, I need more protection. Essentially, you're out of luck. Um, their government is free to uh, make uh, whatever decisions they deem fit uh, in terms of those policy issues. However, once you make the decision to do something, like in this case the city of Nelson, and you say, we are going to clear the streets of snow, uh, and then uh, workers from the city of Nelson go out and start doing that, the way they do it would be an operational thing rather than a policy decision. So once you decide... We're clearing the snow from the sidewalks. Uh, if the crews uh, hired to do that uh, clear them in a way that creates a hazard, right? Let's say they, uh, you know, don't put salt down or decide to, for fun, only salt every second intersection or something, and a person wipes out and gets injured as a result of the poorly implemented 
decision, those things would be operational and you can sue for them and sue successfully. And the the problem in this case from Nelson and the reason why the, the Court of Appeal sent it back uh, is originally the uh, trial judge, I, I think, uh, appeared to have accepted submissions from the city that uh, talked about there being uh, insulation or from a civil suit for uh, policy decisions and didn't do anything to try to sort out what in some cases can be tricky, trying to sort out, you know, was this a policy decision or was this an operational decision? Because in some cases that can be a fine line um, and, you know, you're trying to sort out, you know, how far down the level of minutia do you go? You know, when the, uh, you know, manager for the snow clearing efforts tells everyone, uh, you know, uh, make sure you uh, clear away anything that's uh, more than a foot thick or something, you know, is that a policy decision or is that an operational decision? So there can be real issues there to be sorted out, but the point is the courts need to sort them out. Uh, and uh, judges aren't there to make decisions about, you know, uh, how many police officers should we have or should we or should we not put salt down on the roads. Uh, they are, however, uh, in a position to assess whether those things were done in a careful fashion or whether there was negligence, which is always the, the threshold, carelessness and how the thing was done. And, and so in this case, the uh, poor person with her injured leg from the... Uh, a uh, pile of snow on the side of the road with no clear way from the angled parking spot to the sidewalk will have an opportunity to go back and try again, uh, and a, uh, a judge will have to determine whether that decision or that uh, implementation of the decision, which of those two things it was, uh, and if it was a poor implementation of a decision, essentially, to clear the snow, uh, and that uh, was negligent uh, and uh, caused this injury to her leg, she'll be successful. Uh, but if, on the other hand, uh, there was, it turned out that that was just a policy decision not to spend more money on snow clearing or, you know, send everyone home at 9 o'clock and not have an overtime shift or whatever decision might be made, the government's immune from getting sued for that. It seems to me, and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that the larger guiding principle at work here is that uh, policy decisions and disagreements are political matters best dealt with through political elections, whereas legal issues are best dealt with by the courts. So if you don't like a decision a politician makes, you can vote them out of office. But in terms of following the law, that's where the courts need to be able to intervene. That's yeah, right. that's right. I mean, okay. courts aren't you know suited to make decisions about things like you know, how much salt should the city buy or, you know, should they work overtime or how thick should the plow blade be or various things. Those are decisions that are political ones. That's what city council should be spending their time on. The other interesting background that people should be aware of is the starting point was that governments, the crown, used to be completely immune to being sued at all. Mm. Um, it wasn't that long ago uh, that you simply couldn't sue the crown uh, they enjoyed immunity, um, and it's only by virtue of deciding to permit themselves to be sued uh, that we're now in a position to go there and bring these sort of claims at all. I should say, however, of course, we have in Canada uh, now constitutional protections which don't rely upon the you know goodwill of the government to continue to permit themselves to be sued, but... Okay. These other general principles about sort of when you can sue the crown for these sort of things are all subject to uh, the government imposing various limitations on them. Like, for example, if you're trying to sue a municipality, 
there are very short limitation periods. You've got to give notice to the municipality about wanting to do that. And if you don't do it, you're simply out of luck. Uh, and so that would be an example of how the government uh, has control over when and how you can sue. Uh, but uh, given the legislation currently in place, the broad consideration is, was the thing which you allege to have created the hazard, was that a policy decision or was that an operational decision? And you're only going to have success if it's the latter. What about, uh, say, the Victoria Plastic Bag issue? Plastic Bag Association uh, brought action against municipality of Victoria, went to the B.C. Court of Appeal. They ended up prevailing in a 3 nothing decision. That was clearly a policy decision, but it was still struck down somehow. How does that work? Yeah, the, the other issue, the other way you can wind up in court, particularly for decisions of, well, I suppose, uh, any level of government, but the municipality, we need to remember, is just a... Uh, delegated all its authority is delegated by the province of british columbia and so when you look at any bylaw that the a municipality passes one of the first things you would need to look at would be hey is this within the uh, delegated jurisdiction of that municipal government uh, and if not the municipality has no authority to do those things at all like if the municipality came along and said um, you know, we're going to make it a, a municipal bylaw offense to, you know, uh, assault somebody. Mm. You say, hold on, let's have a look at the legislation. No, that doesn't fall within the uh, range of things that have been delegated. Therefore, a municipality can't do that. Therefore, okay. that has no application. The other level that in Canada we need to assess, of course, is, and this used to be what all constitutional litigation really surrounded prior to the Charter, uh, is the issue of division of powers, right? In, in the Constitution Act, you've got setting out uh, what powers are provincial, what powers are federal. Um, and so there can be arguments about, hey, did that level of government have the authority to do something? And in the case of a municipality, of course, because it really only is receiving delegated authority from the province, the first level of analysis has to be, hey, did the province have any authority to do that? If not, they sure can't delegate it. Yeah. Uh, and then if they did have uh, uh, constitutional authority over that area, then you have to look at, did they delegate it? So that's how the plastic bag issue would have uh, would have wound up off in court. A judge isn't sorting out whether plastic bags are good or bad. The, the uh, judge would only be charged with sorting out, hey, are they allowed to do this? Uh, and then if so, well, fine, fair enough. That's what they are paid the big bucks for. So governments are immune from being sued when making political decisions within the range of decisions they are allowed to make. Like, so if they venture outside that, then you can get the courts involved. But as long as it's within that range where they're permitted to make a valid political decision, then they can't be sued. Yeah, okay. or the language used is policy. So okay. if, you, if you're making okay. a, a policy decision and you've got authority to do it, delegated from the province in the case of a municipality or uh, in the case of the federal or provincial governments, you need to look at how powers are constitutionally divided between those uh, two levels of government. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself, did they have authority to do it, delegated or constitutional? Uh, and then if so, uh, you would have to ask yourself, is that question a policy uh, decision or an operational one? And you're only going to be successful in suing for damages like this if you could establish that the negligence was a function of a failed operation, not a terrible policy decision, even if a government makes a terrible policy decision. Uh, you're not going to get any remedy going to court. Uh, your remedy is go and vote for somebody else. Interesting. Thank you for that. I think that's very helpful in understanding how it all fits together. Legally Speaking continues in just a moment. Stay with us. 
Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, family law, I have been told any number of times, can often be among the most difficult to practice and engage with because it's families who love each other. These uh, Then there often arise disagreements on, let's say, for example, the best path forward for raising a child or for matters such as that. I've been watching this story very carefully about the conduct of a father and about medical treatment for gender dysphoria and about the term family violence violence and about what that means. Set this up for us. Yeah, I must say your your comments are apt about sort of I think the uh, practice of it. And I, I'm thankful that I don't practice in that area. One of the nice things about criminal law is you've got a distinct problem. I may or may not be able to help you with it, uh, but uh, at least it's a defined problem. In family law, often the underlying issue is your spouse doesn't love you anymore. And I'm not quite sure what application I might make in court that's going to fix that. Indeed. But you're quite right. This has been a really challenging case that's been uh, now working its way through the court system in B.C., and it's probably some proof that the uh, Court of Appeal has snow tires uh, because nothing has stopped them from coming to this uh, decision. So the underlying case uh, involves a uh, a young person uh, who is uh, now 14, I think just about to turn uh, 15, um, and um, he was diagnosed with uh, gender dysphoria, uh, and uh, wish to use wish to undertake hormone treatment in order to transition to male, mm. uh, and uh, so uh, he um, lived uh, as a uh, socially as a uh, uh, male for a couple of years. Went to school, changed his name, uh, and then ultimately uh, went to see a, a psychiatrist uh, who diagnosed him with uh, gender dysphoria and referred him to the children's hospital. Uh, the uh, doctors at the Children's Hospital concluded that he would be a good candidate uh, for uh, hormone uh, treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, this is where things started to get rocky. Unfortunately for this young man, his uh, parents had been separated for a few years. Uh, and his mother was supportive of this decision uh, and signed off giving her uh, consent to it. Uh, and ultimately, the... Uh, uh, the young person also, uh, he consented to it, having uh, been uh, described what the risks and benefits and uh, so on uh, of that would be. Uh, now, the trouble came because uh, his father, when the uh, doctors realized that the father wasn't aware of this uh, proposed course of treatment, wrote to the father and said, well, hey, this is what's being proposed. Do you have any, what do you have to say about that? Uh, and uh, the father wrote back saying, I am opposed to that and do not uh, provide my consent uh, in any way, shape, or form. There were then efforts over a number of months between August and December of 2018 uh, by a social worker to try to get the father to come in and meet with the doctors at Children's Hospital to discuss uh, the course of treatment, the pros and cons, uh, um, but he refused, the father refused to show up at any of those meetings. Um, And instead of that, uh, all of this then wound up in court with various applications being made by various people. The father trying to stop the treatment. He was successful in delaying it for a couple of months. Uh, Applications uh, by others to uh, try and restrict the father's uh, efforts. Now, uh, that's when we wound up engaging, uh, amongst other acts, Uh, The Family Law Act in British Columbia, which is a relatively new piece of legislation, it's only a few years old, Um, and unfortunately in this case, it looks like uh, some of the language used by that act made things markedly worse, uh, because 
the that act, the Family Law Act, uh, defines in Section 1 the concept of, quote, family violence, which I think to most people, if you say, well, what is family violence? Most people would have some ordinary understanding of what that might entail. The definition, however, in the Family Law Act is extremely broad, and family violence is defined to include psychological or emotional abuse of a family member, including, and it's a whole bunch of things, including things like unreasonable restrictions or preventing a family member's financial or personal autonomy. That's violence, according to the Act. Uh, And so a court determined that the father's comments to the uh, young person, his son, uh, about uh, hormone therapy and also the father insisting on uh, using female pronouns and insisting upon uh, referring to him by um, the, his original name before his name change, constituted family violence uh, and then made a number of orders uh, pursuant to that conclusion that that was violence, um, ordering, for example, prohibiting the father from using female pronouns, referring to uh, his son using uh, his birth name, uh, and ordering the father not to have discussions with this about anyone, uh, media, other people, essentially a complete gag order. Now, that, of course, precipitated even more litigation. Temperatures went up even higher. It looks like, according to the Court of Appeal, in part because of this language or labeling, around family violence. You can imagine how somebody, even where their conduct is very poor and harmful, and the Court of Appeal uh, doesn't pull any punches uh, about that, discussing how the uh, comments made by the father in this case uh, could uh, result in, uh, potentially were harmful uh, and uh, might be inappropriate and shouldn't be doing those things, and they're very clear about that. One of the things which I think turned the temperature all up here was labeling it violence. Yes. Um, and so the uh, much litigation ensued, you had various applications being made and charter arguments being had, and eventually this entire mess winds up uh, in the Court of Appeal. And you look at this thing, and the, you've got a list of interveners that goes on for two pages, uh, and it uh, turned into a major piece of litigation uh, surrounding all of these issues. The father, father making arguments, including uh, I have a, const- he had a constitutional argument saying, hey, you can't restrict my ability to talk to the press or speak to other people or speak to his son, like he was prohibited from speaking to his son about this uh, treatment. Um, and there are a few interesting conclusions the Court of Appeal reached. One, they pointed out, quite rightly, that uh, constitutional arguments don't apply to disputes between private parties. And yeah. That actually comes out of one of the our very original charter cases called Dolphin Delivery. So unless you're challenging the legislation itself... The charter doesn't apply between two individuals who are having some dispute. Yeah, the charter protects people from the state. Not people from each other. Yes. So he, the father wasn't arguing the Family Law Act was unconstitutional. Therefore, you don't get to argue that your charter rights insist upon some particular conclusion in private litigation between two people. Okay. So the Court of Appeal, I think, here quite sensibly um, did a number of things. They talked about how the court should be very slow to use this concept of family violence uh, for things that aren't, in fact, violent in the ordinary English term of the word. No one strikes anyone else. That right. Sort of they, thing. they didn't say, they didn't find that to be unconstitutional. There was no argument about that, although it seems clear they're concluding that was not perhaps a good policy choice to use that language. 
Uh, and so they concluded that uh, the father should be permitted to have discussions with um, f- like friends and others about his view of these things, although not the media, because that could cause harm to his son. Further found that father should be permitted to have his dis- have discussions with his son about his view about these things and whether it's uh, wise or unwise, uh, because that's sort of a function of parenting, and found that uh, while his comments may well have been harmful and uh, poorly thought out, um, there uh, he should be permitted to at least have discussions with his son because they conclude, look, the son is reasonably mature for his age. He is capable of taking different views into consideration when deciding whether to proceed with this uh, treatment. The Court of Appeal also points out that uh, we have an act in British Columbia which permits young people to make medical decisions for themselves yes. that does not require parents to consent to it as long as they're mature enough to do that and there's medical support for doing it. So the upshot of all of this is that the uh, young man will be permitted to carry on with his uh, treatment. The father will be permitted to talk to his son about it and talk to friends about it, but not go and talk to the media because that could have some impact on his son's uh, well-being. And the Court of Appeal found that uh, this should not be categorized as family violence, which I think was at the core of how this thing got uh, much worse than it uh, could have been uh, had cooler heads prevailed, and perhaps that might have been assisted by using some different language in the act. You can easily imagine how you could use language like unhelpful conduct or conduct not in the interests of your family, something of that sort, rather than defining everything as violence, which just precipitated uh, unnecessary and potentially harmful litigation. A complicated case with implications going forward in terms of public policy and other similar cases that may occur in future. Michael Mulligan, thanks for helping us understand it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Legally speaking, every Thursday here on CFAX 1070 in the second half of our second hour, Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Quick